Okay, I trust you found John chapter 4, verse 1. Why don't we uh, stand and read together? Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, uh, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, well, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman said, Well, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have answered correctly, but you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This you said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers worship, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? Please be seated. Well, today we continue again in our series on prayer and evangelism. And last week, if you'll remember, that we looked at Colossians chapter 4, and we learned from Paul sort of two key ingredients uh, necessary to begin to share your faith with others. First, we talked about being devoted in prayer, and that prayer was the vehicle to opening doors for spiritual conversation and opportunity that God would supernaturally create. Second, we learned that uh, it's not just what we spoke about, it's how we walked. 
So evangelism was more than just talking the talk, it was walking the walk. And he was concerned with uh, how we conduct ourselves. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. In other words, make sure there's nothing in our behavior that would cause people to reject the message of Christ because of the way we live. Today we're moving away from prayer specifically and targeting more the how-tos in evangelistic opportunities once God has opened that door for us. Now today's message is not the only way and, the, and it's like a lock, stock and barrel. Like if you don't uh, you know, follow this 100%, uh, it's not biblical. Um, that's not the case at all. There, there are many things in here that are non-negotiable when it comes to evangelism, but it's not the only way in terms of like a lock, stock and barrel uh, method. At the same time, we need to pay attention because these lessons come directly from Jesus. Jesus modeled what we're going to learn today with the Samaritan woman. And these are things that uh, I know that myself in my own life have uh, tried to adopt in my practices towards others. And those of you who are familiar with Graham and Serena Rattray, I've, uh, I talked to Graham this week on the phone for about 40 minutes and uh, asked him how life was transitioning from Thailand to Edmonton. And you know what's funny? He was, sh uh, he was sharing with me like his obstacles and the victories he's trying to ha have in Edmonton. He's doing the exact same ministry in Thailand as he is in Edmonton. Same focus. And as we talked about things, it's basically everything we're going to learn about this morning. And I know some of you respect them and understand their heart for God. This is the model by which they try to live out their lives as well. So let me just quickly summarize the story. You know it well. Jesus is traveling from the south to the north. He passes through Samaria. He's hungry. He's tired. He's thirsty. He sits down at a well as the disciples go to get food in the town. A woman comes to the well and uh, sort of pops up on the scene to get into a conversation. Jesus, over the, through the conversation, convinces her that he's the Messiah and, he's the, and she needs forgiveness from him and that basically he's the source of salvation. She receives him as the Christ, runs into the village and shares her faith with others and a, a mini revival breaks out of Sychar. So that's the story. So close the book, we're done. Well, that's true. That captures the essence of the story. But what it doesn't capture is the significance of this event. Nor does it teach us just in that understanding the appropriate lessons we need to learn from Jesus and what happened that day. So one of the first things we need to understand here is how many boundaries that Jesus was willing to shatter in order to share truth with her. I'll say that again. We have to understand how many boundaries boundaries that he was willing to shatter in order to minister to her that day and offer her love, mercy, and forgiveness. The first boundary that he broke by walking into, into that situation was historical. Historical boundaries. You notice in verse 9, she says this to Jesus. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? The hostility and animosity that existed between the Jews and Samaritans has gone on for centuries, about 700 years to be exact. 
after Solomon died, you remember that the, the, his son took over the kingdom of, um, of Israel, but he made some foolish decisions. And so what happened was it led to the split of the kingdom into two. Judah in the south, with Jerusalem being the capital, and then Israel in the north, with Samaria being the capital. After the split, the northern kingdom went immediately into idolatry and into continuous rebellion against God. And God warned them and said, if you don't stop this, a Gentile nation is going to come in and judge you. Well, Israel ignored the, uh, the prophets. And lo and behold, 250 years later, only two and a half centuries later, Assyria comes in and wipes them out. Takes the land. Many are killed. Others are taken into captivity, into the Syrian uh, territories. But a small remnant of Jews are allowed to inhabit some of the towns. What happens is the, the Assyrians now uh, start moving into these towns and intermarrying with the Jewish people. What happens is this new ethnic group, this new identity of people. No longer is there the, the pure Jew. Now you have the Jewish bloodline with the Gentile bloodline and you have like a, a new ethnic group formed. Now the Jews hated the Samaritans because they were quote unquote defiled by Gentile blood. The Samaritans also avoided Jerusalem as a place of worship. They no longer traveled to the feasts for the three yearly feasts, but they built their own temple and put it on their own mountain. This becomes evident in verse 19 and 20. He says, she says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, which is Gerizim, but you people say that Jerusalem is a place to worship. Again, there's a division here in worship, their own temple. They even had their own version of the Pentateuch. And they didn't accept the same uh, understanding of, of the Old Testament scriptures as the Jewish people did. So this, this resulted in a long-standing historical hatred and animosity. And you can see some of the, the continued relationship, relational issues in the Old Testament between Judah and Israel. But this hatred and animosity went both ways. Do you remember the story in Luke 9, 53? Jesus is traveling south from Galilee to Jerusalem. He has to pass through Samaria because that's in the middle. It's like the hot dog between two buns type of thing. He has to pass through the middle. And what do the Samaritans do at the end of his ministry? 953, they refused to welcome him. They refused it. Why? Because he's Jewish. So you think, okay, it's a one-sided hatred. Not at all. What was the disciples' response? Jesus, do you want us to call them thunder on them and kill them? <laughs> it's, a, it's incredible. Here's Jesus' right-hand men. They've been with him for like three years. All the lessons they've learned, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, all the, all the lessons they've had about peace and, and, and love and mercy. And at near the end of his ministry, do you want us to call them thunder and kill them? Because, of course, God's mercy doesn't extend to Samaritan people. We know that. <laughs> Here's what's cool about Jesus. He broke through the historical boundaries. The bad blood, the bad history was irrelevant for him to enter into her context and minister to her. Actually, let me show you this map. This will be important. This will give you context. There's Galilee in the north. 
Samaria, of course, in the middle, and Judea in the bottom. So when Jesus is in, in chapter 1, or sorry, the opening verses is traveling from Judea to Galilee, he's going through the Samarian region. The other thing he was willing to do was break ethnic boundaries. Ethnic boundaries. Now I realize that this historical boundary and the ethnic boundary are very much interchanged with each other. They're, very, they're meshed. But it is important to notice that, again in verse 9, she says, How is it that you, being a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan woman? So the history led to the ethnicity, which led to the, the bad blood between them. But again, Jesus says, it, the way he was witnessing with her basically didn't matter. It didn't matter what ethnic group she came from. It didn't matter what bloodline she did or didn't have. She was, he was willing to minister to her. I was reading a, or listening to a commentary. Apparently, uh, Samaritans weren't even allowed, to, or Jewish people weren't even allowed to share the same cup of water. They weren't even allowed to drink out of the same cup as a Samaritan. If a woman was in labor, a Jew was not allowed to help her give birth to her baby. You see how powerful this is. I mean, you think about this, we can see evidence of these types of things in the Good Samaritan parable. In Luke chapter 10, a Jewish lawyer comes to challenge Jesus about what it is to love God and to love your neighbor. And Jesus gets into this huge conversation with them and uses a parable to illustrate the point that the fact that, what, um, that a Samaritan was the one who took care of someone's need and the Jew had failed to do so. And he forced the scribe to admit the Samaritan was the one who upheld the Mosaic Law, which would have been so, so, so painful for a scribe to admit. Jesus knew to use a Samaritan because of the ethnic hatred and animosity between the two. Another boundary Jesus was willing to break through was cultural. Look at verse 27. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. <laughs> clearly, clearly in that culture, for a Jewish rabbi, to be speaking with a woman was a total no-no, total faux pas. That that you, the men, totally open to Jesus. The women, not a chance. Cultural faux pas. For him to be speaking with a woman, again, it's the disciples saying this. This is, they've been trained for three years and they still haven't broken through that cultural understanding. But Jesus breaks through the cultural boundaries. Jesus broke through religious boundaries. Religious boundaries. There was a theological fight between the Jews and Samaritans. Huge differences. We pick this up in verses 19 and 20. Right? Um, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place that people ought to worship. Right? You have Mount Moriah. We have Mount Gerizim. You have the temple in Jerusalem. We have the temple in Mount Gerizim. You have your version of the Pentateuch. We have our version of the Pentateuch. You have your way of appropriating right religious practices towards God, so do we. This is why Jesus' comments in verse 21 are so powerful. 
He says to her, woman, it doesn't matter which mountain that uh, you think is right. Neither are right. Neither. The temple is irrelevant to being right with God and to worshiping God. You're making the location and the religious practices vital. I'm not. Verse 23, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father, not on a particular mountain, but in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. But I love this. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in the spirit and truth. God is spirit. Again, he's not made, he doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands, as Paul said in Acts. He's a spirit. This is incredible. But Jesus doesn't care about her, her upbringing and her misunderstanding. He's still willing to break through that boundary, even though he knows he's teaching truth and she has things wrong. It's irrelevant to him. His love supersedes and transcends this. But really significant church, he was willing to break through moral boundaries. Look at verses 15 through 18. The woman said to him, Sir, give me uh, this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. Jesus said to him, You're correct, you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Of all the things she said right that day, <laughs> her understanding of her, her immorality definitely was one of them. Everything else she had wrong, but this part she had right. This woman, in our context, was an adulteress. Five husbands. Five. Divorced, remarried, divorced, remarried, divorced, remarried, divorced, remarried. Five times. The sixth person was likely common law. Some of the translations actually interpret it as being common law, not just a mere boyfriend. She's on to her sixth man in terms of a serious commitment. Who knows what happened in between in terms of other relationships that just falls to the side. Jesus engages a woman like this. But I just want to just show you some fun observations there's a couple other things that probably point to her immorality and the fact that she's been ostracized by society because of her immorality. I'll leave it to you to decide for yourself if you think these are valid. But look in verse 6 with me and 7. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was the sixth hour. Sixth hour in Roman time is what time? Noon. It's hot. It's dry. It's the heat, the middle of the day. It's heat. People in that day would draw water in the morning when it was cool and get the water for the family for the whole day. Because you need water in the morning. You need a supply for, you know, washing, food, whatever. She's there at six in the, in the, in the uh, or sorry, she's there at noon in the heat of the day. Number two observation, she's alone. Verse seven, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water by herself. 
These are communal societies. Uh, you, as women, you go together for safety and for camaraderie to the well to, to pick up water. It'll be a family event. Here she is on her own. What do these two, point, these two observations point to? To a Jew, a Samaritan is an ostracized people group. She's ostracized within an ostracized people group. She's alone drawing water in the heat of the day. She's an outcast of the outcasts, so to speak. She's a sinner in the fullest sense. And yet Jesus has no problem with her. He's willing to engage her, enter into her context, even the first to initiate conversation. Look at verse 7. He said to her, give me a drink. He initiated going to Samaria. He initiated going, having a conversation with her. He was unfazed, unfazed by the moral discrepancy between his sinlessness and her sinfulness. Jesus' heart for the lost is incredible. None of the historical, religious, cultural, moral stigmas had any influence on his willingness to bring hope and salvation to this woman. But I want to share one more observation with you that I think is really cool to demonstrate his heart for the lost, and it's in verse 3 and 4. He says, He left Judea in the south on the map here, and he had to pass, oh, sorry, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to. He had to. Now, I understand this could be a geographical reference. It was a geographical necessity that he had to go north because Samaria was in the middle. To get to Galilee, he had to pass through. Interesting, not everybody in that day actually did go through Samaria. You could, you didn't have to go through Samaria. Yes, it was the quickest route, but you could go around. You could cross the Jordan at the northern tip of the Dead Sea, go through Korea and up the, that way. Apparently, to some references I ever studied in my studies, Pharisees did that. To not be defiled by the Samaritans, Pharisees would cross into Perea and take the long way around. A couple, it was a couple extra days in journey to do it, but they were willing to do it not to be defiled. So some people believe this had to, it was a geographical necessity. He had to go north. But I don't think that's what he means by had to. I don't think had to has a, is a geographical necessity, but a divine necessity. Listen to this. And he had to pass through Samaria. He just had to. <laughs> What's the message of John? What's the entire book about? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. John 20, verse 31, at the end, these have been written, this book has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that you may have life in his name. Look at verse 42 in chapter 4. We never read it, but read it with me now. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, 
for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Not the Savior of Jerusalem, not the Savior of Samaria, of the world. This had to, was a divine necessity. He had to go. That's the heart of Jesus Christ. No one, no person, woman, man, ethnic background, moral background, cultural background, had, was outside of his grace and love. He demonstrated that in John chapter 2 with the saving of a religious man named Nicodemus, and now in chapter 4 of an irreligious woman who was half Jewish and half Gentile. He saves the self-righteous religious people and he saves the most immoral people in the world. And somewhere in between their church, you follow in, in those categories. Somewhere in, the, in this church, all of you fall between Nicodemus and this woman. And so do I. So here's the first lesson we pick up in this, in terms of doing evangelism. And this is so critical. We must be willing to enter into social contexts and initiate conversations with those who differ from us. We must be willing to enter into social contexts and initiate conversations with those who differ from us. Jesus was the first to speak to her. He was the first to go to Samaria. He wasn't waiting for anyone to initiate with him in Samaria, or he wasn't not willing to go there. It was about his initiation into those environments. We have to be willing to take the first steps, church, in conversation, and to, and to give ourselves over to enter into, into areas of people's lives that we are uncomfortable with. Let's consider historical backgrounds. I know some of your stories. In, within, even within your own family, you have Christians and non-Christians within your own family. You have uh, neighbors that have maybe uh, have been a bit difficult. You could be in school and you've got certain peer groups or kids that have been quite difficult. There's a history there of bad blood. A history there. Are we willing to put that aside and enter into their social context and enter into initiate conversation with them in order to bring them the hope of Jesus Christ? There might be ethnic and cultural differences between people that you know. For you and I, there are certain, uh, be certain uh, cultural groups, or sorry, ethnic groups, I should say, that are harder to embrace than others. People with different pigmentation of their skin than you. I'll just be straight up. So you don't think I'm just talking to, uh, not talking to myself here. You know who the people, the most hardest people in my life to, to love? And to witness to and care for and enter into a context would be both in history and ethnicity, the natives. The natives. Straight up. Why? I grew up bullied from the ages of five to ten every single day. When I was a teenager into early twenties, I couldn't get a, I couldn't uh, get jobs because I didn't have the right uh, bloodline. There was prejudice in terms of uh, hockey. I wasn't allowed to play in certain tournaments because I was uh, Caucasian. 
But they had the audacity to ask me to ref tournaments. I had systematic mistreatment, systematic prejudice, systematic abuse, all because of my different pigmentation in my skin. Am I willing to enter into the social context, initiate conversation with those who have hurt me this way? I know what Jesus would do. He is a savior of the whole world. How about religious differences? People that differ from you and I in religion. For again, for me, straight up, Roman Catholics. Nobody's harder for me than Roman Catholics. I'm not going to get into the history of why. That I can I can talk to them. It's way easier for me to embrace any other form of religion than Roman Catholicism. Long history, long story. But am I willing to enter into the social context and issue a conversation with those who differ than me? Is Jesus the is, is he the savior only for the Muslim or the Mormon? How about morality? Those who differ than us morally. This is a huge one, church. What happens to us often as Christians is this. We're saved out of sin, and we enjoy that mercy and grace, and, and, and just love the lavishness of Christ's uh, care for us in that way. As the weeks and months and years, especially years, go by, we often kind of forget what we were saved from. We start to forget. And then when we see people in the community or in our families that are acting out, we start to get kind of judgmental. I wish they would just do this, and if they, if they, knew, you know, if they knew better, they would do this. And we forget that we were just like them in our thoughts and feelings and actions. And we start to put an expectation of morality on non-believers because we're Christian people, and we get judgmental. 1 Corinthians 5.12, Jesus, or Paul says this to his teaching from Christ. What are you doing judging outsiders? You judge those within the church, not outside. We can't expect people to follow the Jesus way in the world. They don't know him. <laughs> I can't expect any kid to behave like a Dexter. Any of your kids to behave like a Dexter except mine. Because I trained them. Janice is training them. What you do in your family, do in your family. But my, we have expectations. In God's family, there's expectations. You can't expect anybody else who doesn't know the Lord to behave in a certain way. But it's those moral differences that make it uncomfortable for us to bridge that gap because we get scared and don't like the pressures of living in those environments. They can't teach you guys. <laughs> you stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're to be a light in darkness, not a light in light. He was friends of the tax collectors and sinners. Are we willing to give up what's comfortable, what's normal, to live outside of our comfort zones, to do life on other people's terms, to get into their world, into their beliefs, in order to share the love of Christ? One of our biggest enemies, church, is time. It's time. It's time. 
Hard to ask a North American this question without getting this response. How you doing? Busy. How you doing? Oh, busy. Ever heard this? How you doing? Man, it's been awesome. I'm such a couch potato. I just do nothing and lay around all day. I wish life had more to throw at me. It's awesome being waited on hand and foot. Like I'm just like a living like a king and a queen. Time is your enemy. That's one of the major enemies. This is going to, in order to do this, church, we have to reorganize our lives and, and, and reorganize our priorities. I've shared the story before, but I don't know if I emphasize this part enough. When I went through my reboot as a Christian, when I walked down the street from Elizabeth Street by the car washes, I walked towards the corner where I'm um, on my way to Millergal, and I was praying to the Lord. I said, Jesus, if this is Christianity, I don't want it. Because I was so busy doing Christianese things, but not sharing my faith with anybody or being any effect, having no effect on us in the kingdom. And over the, I said, what do you want me to do? And over the next six months, he revealed this to me. He said, Andrew, I couldn't use you anyway if I wanted to because you're too busy. I can't use you anyway, even if I wanted to because you are too busy. So I looked at my schedule and I delete, 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 delete. One day Stuart Marcello comes into my life. One day a guy named Mike comes into my life. And one day a guy named Trevor comes into my life. I could meet them all every single week. Three men per week for months. Schedule clear. <laughs> we have to be willing to enter into social context and initiate conversation with those who differ than us. It's so easy to read, very life-changing in terms of embrace. Give you a hint. It might seem daunting to you. Here's a hint. This is Graham and Serena talking to them on the phone. And actually talking to them when they're here when they preach at their church. All you do is uh, you do things together. So watch this. Here's here, true story for him. Um, they would go to a movie. So they had phone. The, one of their people they were witnessing to said, you want to go to a movie with us? They, in Thailand, you go to buy dinner a lot. Like they eat out all the time because food is so cheap in the markets and stuff. So um, unlike here where it costs you three times as much, it's cheaper there. They would invite people to go shopping with them for food. Then they would eat together afterwards. His kids made a joke with them one time that they, they uh, basically about how these people, like I forget what their names were, there's one boy in particular, one man, basically thought that he was part of their family because he was constantly intertwined with everything they did. If time seems compressing to you, Share, and share with things you're already doing and encompass people into those things. You eat every single day. Eat with them. You have certain hobbies and certain things that, uh, that are shared interest. Do them with them. You like to work out. Do it with them. You like to dance. Do it with them. You like to play music. Do it with them. Stop doing it on your own. These are natural ways to embrace and to, and to move into other people's lives. 
Lesson number one. Lesson number two. Look for open doors and transitioning from normal to spiritual conversation. Look for open doors and transitioning from normal to spiritual conversation. Jesus used water and his need for a drink and the location of a well as a means of transitioning into spiritual realities. He took his need for thirst, his location at a well, and changed it into a spiritual conversation. Look at verse 10. Well, he started verse 7. He says, give me a drink, right? But verse 10 is, is critical. Um, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to give you a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given it to you. He would give you this living water. Verse 12, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle, and so on? She doesn't catch on what he's doing here, but what does he do? He transitions in from normal conversation and makes a spiritual reality out of it. Goes from physical water to spiritual water. Now she didn't, again, she didn't know what he was doing at this point, but she picks up, she picks up on this later. We can see by her response in verses 27 forward that she got that he was the Messiah. This is key, church. This is the way in to find out what people believe and what they know. When you pray for open doors, remember the prayer? Pray that God opens up a door so that it's clear how you ought to speak. And he says, so I can proclaim the mystery of Christ. The conversation is moving this direction. You look for open doors. Let me tell you what happened to me about a month ago. I had a fiddle for sale in Kijiji. A guy from Calgary comes to my house to buy it. We spent about an hour together uh, in, in the home just playing music and having some fun and getting to know one another. We go out to the, uh, the car and I'm basically saying goodbye to him. Just, you know, just extending the greeting right out onto the neighborhood streets. He's got the door open. He's about to jump in his car and I don't remember how, but he brought up a joke. He brought up a joke about men. Um, I wish there was a book out there that could really help me understand women. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, I just wish I knew how to understand women. I think it's an impossibility. And he went on about how he's been recently divorced. Okay? He was about to get in his car. That's a natural... Okay, I wish there was some information out there on how to get along with women. That's a physical reality. And I, the door was open. And as I said, I said, I won't tell you his name. I'll just call him, uh, let's call him like, Roger. <laughs> I said, Roger, I find it interesting that you say you wish there was a book out there how to understand them. And I said, have you ever considered the Bible? <laughs> and he goes, uh, well, you know, I don't really believe in that book. And I said, how come? And he gave me two answers, two rebuttals to it. I said, you know what, Roger? He said, those, those are interesting points. I said, how about this? How about you and I get together for coffee sometime? And I'd love to answer those questions with you and we'll talk about that. He goes, sure, that'd be great. Done. What did I do? I moved him from the reality of the physical need of not knowing and understanding women to saying, God's got an answer. 
He may not like the answer, but that's not my problem. I'm to present him the truth. God, the Spirit, does the work in his life. Now, I'm not saying that to show you to be arrogant. I'm just saying that's, that's how I'm thinking in my mind. I've missed many, many open doors and kicked myself in the butt later for going, why didn't I take it? But that was one time that I used the, the principle. I looked for ways to transition from normal, everyday conversation into spiritual realities. We have to look for open doors, church, and, and pick up on them right quick. Remember Colossians 4? Pray, devote yourself to prayer, being alert with thanksgiving. Alert, like a deer in your yard with his ears up when you open the door. You're listening, looking for opportunities for God, opening up doors where you can jump in and transition into the spiritual. Finally, when those are open, now Jesus did this in a matter of minutes. In a matter of minutes. This might take minutes, this lesson, or it might take weeks or months. Again, like there's no, there's no, uh, I can't be the predictor of time on this. But number three, at some point in that relationship, you're going to have to share important spiritual truths necessary for salvation. Because one's eternal life is at stake, the conversation must switch to sharing certain things. Look at what Jesus shared with her. Three things. Number one, salvation is a gift from God. Um, verse 10. Actually, it's not there. I'll, I'll find it. Yeah. Verse 10. Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God, which you don't, by the way, right? That's what he's saying. If you knew it, because you don't know it, that's important. Salvation's a gift. Eternal life, Jesus was saying, is something that you can't earn on your own merit. You can't. You can't have five husbands and be common law with a six and think that worshiping on a particular mountain makes you right with God. That's not how it works with me. Salvation's a gift. There's nothing in your own moral standing, your own religious standing, your own ethnic standing, your own cultural standing to make you right. It starts with what God has to give you. It's a present. It's a gift. It's freely given to you. Apart from anything you have done in the past. That has to be part of our message, church. It has to be part of our message. I was talking to a fellow yesterday, uh, this week. And he... He revealed his, his belief system. He said, well, Andrew, there's only two kinds of people. There's good and bad. There's good and bad. I know what he was getting at. And that's an open door for me, by the way. I heard that. And that's a, I'm going to follow up with him on that belief system later on. The timing and place wasn't right to engage in that. But um, he, he said uh, they're good and bad. According to Jesus Christ, with the Samaritan woman, 
there is no good and bad in terms of earning God's favor. We all start in the bad category. <laughs> because all of us have sinned against the Holy God. Second truth. The true nature and identity of Christ. He says in verse 10, look at this. Not only did she not know the gift of God, he says, if, um, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you'd realized who was talking to you, which you don't, you would have asked me for a drink, and I would have given you living water. Now this is important. We get lazy sometimes in our Christian Bible study. If I were to ask you, who's Jesus? You'd give me a definition, and it would probably be right. In fact, I'm guaranteeing it would be right. Let's use a definition of what, how Jesus defines himself in this passage. Two words. How does he describe himself in verse 10? Living water. I'm living water. Let's look at the significance of that statement. Jeremiah 2, verse 11. Has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones, even though they are not gods at all? Yet my people have exchanged a glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people, this is the Lord speaking, have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. And they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. In Jeremiah's day, the Jewish people had done two errors, two sins. They abandoned him, who was the fountain of living waters, to go after false idols. <laughs> Described as broken cisterns, cracked, because they can't hold water, because they're not real. They're not the source of spiritual life. They're broken idols. <laughs> God says, I am living water. I am the source of eternal life. Jesus, what's he claiming to this woman? I'm God. <laughs> I'm the Lord. I'm the source of living water. Just like in Jeremiah's day, the Lord was the source of living water. Incredible statement. I'm the source of eternal life. That's the nature of our message to people. We have to come to that. Listen, when you're witnessing, number one, guys, girls, you, salvation's a gift. You can't earn your way to God. Number two, do you know who Jesus is? He's the source of eternal life. He's deity. He had to be deity. He had to be fully God, fully human. And go into it. These are important truths. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a man. He's not just a good teacher. He's the source of eternal life. The only way to God. Finally, I'm going to finish with this. You need the need for the forgiveness of sin. You have to teach that. The woman shows interest, even though she doesn't kind of catch on to the spiritual conversation at first. She does show interest in that she wants what he has to offer. So, in verse 15, the woman said, Give me this water so I'll not be thirsty again. Jesus said, Done, given to you. What does he transition into? She wants the living water. She wants the eternal life. And so he has to deal with something important in her life. Sin. Go call your husband and come here. 
I have no husband. Yeah, you're right, you've had five, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. Yes, Jesus loves her. Jesus has gone out of his way. He had to come to Samaria. He initiated a conversation. He was willing to break all the stereotypes and the stigmas of the Jewish-Samaritan relationships. But he needed to deal with the sin in her life in order to give her the living water. Now, this is the most important part, one of the most important parts, church. This is nerve-wracking in evangelism because we have these close relationships with people we love. But somewhere we have to enter the uncomfortable Somewhere along the lines, you have to enter the uncomfortable, the, the, the potential dividing point where when you present that truth where they could reject, reject you and walk away from you. Nobody likes getting their sin exposed. Even in the Christian community, the most awkward conversation in the Christian community is to tell another fellow brother or sister that their sin. <laughs> it's not fun at all. Never mind a non-Christian telling them that. But listen to John 3.20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. It's tough to have deeds exposed. We don't like it. But we have to be willing to enter into that territory. If we don't, there's no salvation, church. If you don't deal with sin, there's no salvation. All you've done is have a... a convert that doesn't actually know the Lord. Paul said it well in like three words, Christ died, or four words, Christ died for sin. Done. If we don't preach that and don't help the people see their need for the forgiveness, there is no Savior. There is no salvation. Now, the cool thing about this the woman becomes a follower of Jesus. And as you read the rest of the story, we see the whole town of Sychar coming to him, and there's a tremendous harvest. We can learn well from the Master, <laughs> the Lord. So this is your lessons, the same as I just preached throughout the whole sermon. We must be willing to enter into social context, initiate conversation with those who differ from us. Two, we look for open doors and transitioning from normal to spiritual conversation. Three, we share important spiritual truths necessary for salvation when that door has been opened. The salvation is a gift, the true nature of Christ, and the need for forgiveness of sin. Amen.